Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. For this edition of the podcast, we'll be talking about Berlin. The Berlin Film Festival has been underway in the past week. It'll probably be wrapped up by the time you're listening to this, but it's been especially a strong edition. And I'm very pleased to be joined again by Jonathan Romney. Uh, welcome back, Jonathan. Thank you. Hello, Nick. So you've been writing reviews for Screen Daily for this festival again? Yep, and a wrap-up for The Observer. And actually, I, I think there's some sort of curse on me because it happens every single year that there is usually, you know, a film or a couple of films that I don't get around to talking about. And invariably, those will be the films that win the top prizes. And it's happened this year with Radu Judas' film Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, which won the Golden Bear. And I've got to say I was surprised because Judah is a, a director I like very much indeed. I mean, I think he's the most interesting and unpredictable of the directors to emerge from the Romanian New Wave. He tries something new with every film. There was a really strong film by him last year called Uppercase Print, which was rather... Brechtian. He used a lot of archive footage and he used theatrical performance. And he's gone for something similar this time, but I didn't really feel it worked. And it's a film in three parts. And one part is in that kind of um, street realism mode that he, he started out in years ago with a film called The Happiest Girl in the World. The second part is a sort of Godardian patchwork of images and words, a, a sort of ironic dictionary of key words and key phrases. Uh, many of many of the references to being to Romanian history and the Ceausescu legacy. And, and then the third part is basically the uh, almost a comedy courtroom scene, which is uh, a school meeting. There is uh, a school teacher called Emmy who has recorded a sex tape which has found its way onto the internet and she's being um, she's basically on trial for her job and of course what emerges is the hypocrisy of the system and you know she's put on trial for her sexuality and for corrupting children but of course what emerges very quickly is you know a different kind of social agenda and the people who are being most moralistic are revealing their uh, profound anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera. But it's very odd. It's a film that makes its point at certain times with subtlety and complexity and indirectness, and then at the end sort of hits you over the head with a hammer. Or, or, or to be more precise, you know, a large dildo. Um, it, it's a very odd film, and, you know, I... I absolutely kind of applaud its sense of adventure and provocation but compared with other films he's made in the past it just felt a bit nebulous somehow well not maybe not nebulous because it's so it's so direct but it did it didn't have you know the judo touch that you look for yeah i confess it's a movie that i still have not seen and i think maybe that's partly because it was slowly just slipping down my priority list turned out that that won the golden bear and i was just trying to remember what was the golden bear last year was it the an iranian film right oh yeah it was it was rasulov's film and rasulov was one of the judges this year they had a kind of all-star auteur jury of people who've won the golden bear in the past 
Right, that's right, the Rasulov film. So, well, I'll have to catch up on Rajuda's film. And I mean, along the lines of it being a pretty ambitious film and also just make me wonder why his films don't seem to make their way to the U.S. uh, in terms of distribution, at least. I mean, I had forgotten about uppercase print until you mentioned it just now. But there's a kind of maybe more humble film in a way that I, I would love to hear talk about because I think it's one of your favorites from from the lineup. Uh, and that's a documentary, actually. Uh, Mr. Bachman and his class. Yeah, which was another prize winner. It won the Silver Bear Jury Prize. And, and it's a film by Maria Spett. It's a German film. And it feels very familiar. So Mr. Bachmann and his class. Mr. Bachmann is a school teacher in an industrial town who teaches classes in their early teens, mainly from families of immigrant backgrounds, Turkish, Bulgarian, Romanian, uh, Sardinian as well. And he's incredibly laid back you know he's the kind of you know the laid back school teacher you wish you had he sort of turns out you know he's an old guy he actually looks like or sounds like bill murray playing Bellatar. you know he he's kind of like an old hippish guy he's got a sort of grizzled white beard he wears kind of woolly caps an acdc t-shirt and you know he's incredibly soft-spoken and laid back but he has this incredible empathy and ability to, you know, win students' attention and win their understanding and their patience. And he's very patient himself. He's, he's clearly brilliant at obtaining discipline without imposing it. You know, he, at the beginning of the film, when the kids come into the classroom, he says very quietly, okay, everyone, now I want you to leave and come in again more quietly. And you think, well, he really has it. You know, he knows how it's done. And so over three and a half hours, you simply see him in the classroom with a few excursions. You know, there is, there is a trip at the end on a kind of end of year summer camp with horses. There's a trip to a local museum where they learn about local history and they learn about the history of emigration to this town. But they also learn about the town in the Hitler era and labor camps which were there and then why immigration was a thing in that particular town because the local factory wanted to import workers, etc., etc. We also learn a little bit about him, not very much, but, you know, he, he talks about being married or having been married and ha- having two children and also talks about, you know, not having been a star pupil himself, which is another reason why, you know, it's something that his pupils can clearly relate to. He knows where they're coming from and they know where he's come from. And... So the film in its way is, you know, it's not unfamiliar territory. It's quite reminiscent of Nicolas Philibert's Être et Avoir, about a French teacher and much younger kids. And it's also quite reminiscent of uh, Laurent Cantet's The Class, which, which won the Palme d'Or in Cannes a few years ago, which was a kind of fictionalized version of a similar situation, but with the writer and teacher François Bégodeau playing himself in the lead. So, you know, it it fits a particular kind of category of 
observational education film, if you like. But over three and a half hours, you know, it does not waste a second. And it's absolutely watchable. It's a beautiful kind of modest piece of filmmaking about, you know, a very modest character who doesn't impose himself, but just sort of radiates in this with this sort of quiet intensity. And, you know, you get to know the pupils and you get to see the dynamic between them. And the great thing he says to the class at the end is, you know, the most important thing is to be true to yourselves. And you come out of it thinking, gosh, well, maybe maybe it could be that simple. And, you know, you, you, know, you wonder where these, these um, young people are going and, you know, what they have ahead of them. And clearly times will be tough in this industrial town and times will be tough as Germany turns further to the right. But it does leave you, you know, feeling that um, he and the other teachers like him that we meet have really equipped them very well for the future, for their future in the world. I mean, I whole, wholeheartedly agree uh, with, with what you said about it. I was especially moved by one scene, uh, you know, because the parents are involved and, in, he, he, you know, he keeps them involved with the usual parent teacher conferences, I guess, with the, with the child present as well. But also, you know, he has a, he has, seems to have some just, I don't know, event where he brings everyone in just to have drinks and snacks, including the parents. I really like that. And then also one particular parent teacher conference where it's, I think, a Bulgarian family. So a father and daughter come in and the daughter has to translate. So, I mean, on top of <laughs> being the subject of the conversation, she has to act as this expert translator uh, between uh, her father and the teacher. And mm. it's great. A few lines in, do you remember the father just clearly just gets completely disarmed um, by Mr. By Herr Bachman? Um, and the, the subtitles say something like, sort of out of nowhere, they say, you're a very warm and empathetic person or something like that. Just not what you're expecting mm. to say, but it's just clearly he's able to make that connection and yeah. i don't know i just really love that moment because partly because that sort of scene you know you mentioned other movies on this subject in this kind of milieu that sort of scene usually sets you up for some total disconnect yeah and the parents are an obstacle or just like unredeemably they're left behind the prior generation yeah. you know and that's not the point of it um so i, I really like that it's also fascinating to see from a British perspective because, you know, in this country, education has become so bureaucratized and has become so much about hitting targets and about outcomes and ticking the boxes of the syllabus. And the idea of an education, and this may not be, this film may not be representative of the German education system at all, but the idea of an education experience, which is based on, you know, imagination and understanding and empathy and, you know, a very quiet form of empowerment does come across as a very, as a very radical thing. And, you know, I hope a lot of teachers get to see it and, and are reminded of, you know, just what the possibilities are. Yeah, and there's obviously a certain amount of skill and talent that goes into it. You know, I think of how the movie opens where he's telling, uh, Herr Bachman is telling this story, anthropomorphizing story about a guitar and a table. And, you know, I, I couldn't really follow it. The students were trying to follow it, but then it ends up having an emotional 
point to it. And I, I don't know if that's something that everyone can can do. And, you know, it almost made me flash back to one of the Steve McQueen chapters in Small Axe. I think it's education, you know. Education, yeah. You have the bad version of Herr Bachman, the guy who just like turns on music and is just kind of thinks that's going to do the trick, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's definitely something special about him. And I have to say, I hope no one has uh, made a joke of this too much, but there was also just a slight school of rock quality to it in that, you know, part of his way of kind of bringing people together and getting come harmony and getting people to express themselves is through music. So I did, I admit, I confess, I did have like a flashback, even though, you know, and on any yeah. other level, it's different to, to, <laughs> to school of rock. Yeah, yeah. So that's Mr. Bachman and his class. I think you mentioned one more movie that was also a prize winner that we could talk about. Shall we try the Hamaguchi? Yeah, I like that very much. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. I didn't like his last film, which was a kind of diptych, I think different versions of the same character. But his previous film, Happy Hour, which famously stretches out to many hours, and was a very involving and complex drama. And the new film is is incredibly subtle. And actually, it was the last film that I saw in, in the festival. And the first film that I saw on Monday morning was Hong Sang Soo's uh, introduction. And it's very odd because they are both triptychs and they're both very, very simple. They are, you know, the quintessential people talking in rooms movies except in Hamaguchi's case, the stories are not linked. They're only linked thematically. They're people talking in rooms, but also in the back of taxis and on, you know, station walkways. And it's absolutely riveting. I mean, it's one of the, the simplest films in the festival. Brilliantly acted, brilliantly written, very complex script, but very simple script. And it, it, there are three stories, and one is a sort of a classic, triangle story about a woman whose friend tells her about the new guy she's met and of course it's the other woman's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend but they're still sort of simmering and the second is a story about a woman who agrees on behalf of her younger boyfriend who's a student to get his teacher in a kind of honey trap by trying to seduce him with an extract from his own erotic novel. And it's a very strange, very kind of awkward, but very funny sequence. Um, and then the third story is about two women who, who meet after many years having been lovers at school. Or do they? Because in fact, halfway through, they realize that actually the situation is entirely different. So they're, they're kind of comedies of manners, but they're not primarily comic. And the comedy is of a very delicate, dry, extremely subtle nature. I mean, it's absolutely what you would call a grown-up film, because it deals with very complex emotions, and it deals with subtexts, and it deals with the unsaid. And, I mean, the reason I compared it with Hong Sang-soo, although this is in slightly a more elaborate register, both in the execution um, and in the, um, the nature of the dramas, is because there is a sense of so much going on 
between the lines. And in fact, in Hamaguchi's film, much more is finally said and many more things become explicit. So there's a lot less guessing for the viewer to do. But at the same time, so much is about where things take place and the way things are said and, you know, certain gestures and, you know, and the characters really feel, you know, you really feel that they are embodied by the actors. You know, you do get the sense that every character, regardless of what they do or don't say, comes to the screen with a whole being uh, already there. It's it's really kind of beautiful and you know emotionally and intellectually satisfying film and and it does the kind of things that people um, of a certain age will be very nostalgic about you know the best Eric Roma films doing. I really like this movie as well, and I'm so glad you mentioned Hong Sang Soo because it almost became distracting at a certain point. Uh, because I believe he uses the same piece of music as this kind of recurring cue as Hong does in one of his movies. I'm just not entirely sure. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I did wonder whether this film had been made under the the influence of Hong Sang-soo, and I can absolutely understand filmmakers seeing Hong's films and thinking, yeah, I want to try that because it's so stripped down and so pure and such you know, I think a kind of fundamental form of cinema, what happens if you put two people in a room and have them talk to each other quietly, you know, it's like the ultimate cinema in which people behave like adults. And the music did suggest to me that he was signalling the uh, affinity with Hong. Incidentally, I, I, I also thought that that Hong's new film introduction is one of his best in ages, and one of the most mysterious because it's a film in which it strikes me that all the essential incident happens between the three episodes. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. And and that's definitely a quality that is present in the Hamaguchi. Just the sense with each of these three stories, uh, at a certain point, I think the viewer wonders, uh, my God, what have I walked into? <laughs> you know, just this sense of some, you know, colossal emotional baggage of some sort that you're just learning about or grievance or something or secret. And each also each of the sections having its own kind of formal gambit at, at one point uh, or just kind of feet. It kind of pulls off in the first one. About half of it is a, I think, a single long take dialogue in a car between two parts of the triangle. And then in the second section, it's this long scene, kind of confrontation scene between the woman who's trying to entrap a, a professor. And I just honestly had no idea where that was going to go. So it felt like this tightrope act um, and kind of mm. the same effect in the third section, a bit of a tightrope where, you know, as you, as you mentioned, these two people, a woman who thinks that she's meeting a classmate who she had some feelings for um, and you don't know where it's going to go or how it's going to land. Um, so he manages to kind of renew that sense of suspense and suspension in each section without it feeling either like these are, you know, tricksy uh, stories that each have to have some kind of punch or something. So uh, an ending, I mean, not to give too much away, but also just ending on just a note of genuine feeling, you know, not dissimilar from uh, Mr. Bachman. I wouldn't expect that at the end of these three episodes, that that's how he would end it. So yeah, I quite like that. Yeah, that's the Hamaguchi film. 
And I think there's actually even one more movie, uh, now that I looked at the prize winners that you mentioned, and that's a cop movie. I thought this was incredible. It was a real blast of energy. And you don't often get blasts of energy in Berlin competition. I mean, this it, the competition material tends to be very kind of low-key as a rule. It's a rather sort of introspective festival. And I remember years ago when Elite Squad won the Golden Bear, the Brazilian film. And that was very controversial because people thought, wow, you know, is this about, is this, you know, a critique of Brazilian policing methods or is it, you know, an authoritarian drama? And that ambiguity was really interesting. This film, A Cop Movie, is by uh, the Mexican director Alonso Ruiz Palacios, who made a fantastic film called Gueros, and then had a film in Berlin a few years ago called Museo, which was a kind of neo, a somewhat meta caper movie uh, in the kind of Rififi, Top Capi vein. And it was about, you know, Mexican history and Mexican identity and the idea of, well, you know, what do pre-Columbian artifacts mean culturally and politically now? But it did it very, very entertainingly. This is a real departure for him. And it appears to be a kind of Errol Morris-style staged documentary about two Mexico City cops, officers on the beat, one a woman called Teresa, the other um, her male partner, uh, who's known as Montoya, and they're, they're partners on the beat, but also in life. And each has a section at the beginning in which they appear to be talking to camera or talking in voiceover. And there are very, very kind of flashy reenactments of their life on the streets, including this incredible chase. And it feels like, you know, one minute it feels like Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line. Then it feels almost like Die Hard. It's incredibly atmospheric, quite, you know, knowingly flashy it's very much got a kind of music video feel but you feel you're getting the real thing because you see these cops on the street and you see them at the police academy and occasionally you know their voiceover will cut in or you will hear them at you will see them talking uh, they will turn to camera and talk about what's what's happening so it's very much kind of messing with the form uh, and you don't quite know how much you're seeing fiction, how much you're seeing, quasi-documentary. And then, halfway through, he flips it over, and we see the two actors who have been playing the roles all along. And we see them preparing for their role, and we see their video diaries in which they talk about going to the police academy boot camp in order to reproduce the real life experience of these two people who are, you know, real life Mexico City officers who have incidentally been talking all the time about, you know, the reality of the job and the fact that there is corruption. And of course, yes, you take bribes and that's the only way the system works. And then at the end of the film, it, it flips back into that reconstruction mode and we see what happens when you don't take bribes. And there is an episode with uh, the woman, Maria Teresa, and a real episode that happened to her when she got on the wrong side of, of a guy who you know, was insistent on flouting the rules as they're always flouted. 
Now, I'm, I'm kind of making assumptions here because to all intents and purposes, we understand that once things are revealed as being real, we understand what's real and what's fake. I'm making assumptions here because maybe the film is still playing fast and loose, but this, this is what it appears to be. It appears to be a very elaborate, very complex game, which finally, as far as I can see, unveils certain truths about the Mexico City police force, you know, which is, you know, a police force which is sort of famously controversial in any case. Um, I found it absolutely compelling and, you know, just just a blast of cinema. And it's one of those films where all the kind of, you know, it's a sort of film that you can imagine Quentin Tarantino getting very excited about. Uh, and, you know, and indeed, I think Martin Scorsese would like it, you know, because it's got that sort of very sort of gritty urban dynamism. But it does seem, again, I say, as far as I can see, very invested in investigating reality and, you know, rolling its sleeves up and getting into reality, you know, in the same way as these two actors really had to go through some difficult stuff and, you know, go to boot camp. Although it's interesting that uh, one of them says, wow, you know, this boot camp only lasts six weeks and it makes you wonder how well-trained are Mexico City cops in the first place. I mean, that's definitely going to be top of my catch-up list. Yeah, it's going to be on Netflix, by the way. And, and of course, one of the things that, that it also does, it kind of makes you realize you see these two actors playing cops and it makes you realize that how much of the job of being a police officer is playing a role. It's about, you know, walking it and talking it and wearing the uniform and wearing the part. So it's very, very revealing in that sense. Did you ever see a film called, Canadian film called I Love a Man in Uniform? No, I haven't. It's from, uh, I think, the early 90s. And it's really interesting. It's by um, a director called David Wellington. And it's about a guy, an actor, who plays a cop. And then once he has the uniform on, he doesn't want to take it off. He doesn't want to get out of the part. And it's about what playing a cop does to you. So this film is really interesting in the same way. It's about, you know, measuring the myth the cinema myth against the reality. And there's a wonderful thing because the actor, Raul Briones, is, you know, he comes on at the beginning and he's, he realizes he's got to cut his hair and shave his beard. And he's clearly uncomfortable because, you know, here is someone who, you know, I'm an actor, I'm bohemian and, you know, I'm, I'm a counterculture guy. And here I am playing an authority figure. Very, very revealing. And I think, you know, some people may think, oh, this film cannot possibly be about the real because it's so elaborately glossy and slick, but it's just um, dazzling filmmaking, I think. Really, really exciting. For some reason, I'm, I'm flashing back to that moment in Fauna, the Nicholas Pareto movie, where you know one of the actors, fiance or something, is being asked by his father-in-law to you know, because the father-in-law learns that he's acting on a cop show. And he's like, well, well, show me, show me a line from your show. Uh, and he has to kind of play the role of, of, of a cop in this like rural bar where everyone's just wondering what the hell he's doing. Um, anyway, there were one or two more movies left that we wanted to talk about. Taste is this Vietnamese film. I think it's a debut feature. A filmmaker's name is Lee Bao. I think you, you use the term UFO to describe it, right? 
Yeah, that, that's the French term. The, the French critics like to use the term UFO to describe a film that kind of comes out of nowhere and you can't really account for its strangeness. I mean, I, I think this is a film that doesn't quite come out of nowhere in the sense that I would bet... It, it felt in a strange way like a sort of merging of Simon Liang and Pedro Costa. So the Pedro Costa is there in certain angles and very strange perspectives and use of space and the fact that uh, it's incredibly dark a lot of the time. The Simon Liang aspect it reminded me of films of his like um, uh, I Don't Want to Sleep Alone and uh, Stray Dogs, which are often set in interiors with kind of beautifully uh, mildewed walls. And there's also a kind of performance art aspect to it. So it does feel very much like a, a, like a performance art film or, or, you know, film with aspects of installation. There's an extraordinary scene where a dark blue kind of barrage balloon, I guess, is blown up extremely slowly. The late, no, it's, it's there, I think, blown up at the beginning and then it's deflated very slowly. It's a very strange film anyway. Um, and it's about, insofar it's about anything, it's about a Nigerian footballer who has joined a team in Vietnam and has moved into a kind of slum space in Ho Chi Minh City with a group of middle-aged women, Vietnamese women. And they all spend most of the film naked there's a pig running around there's a lot of cooking going on there's a strange kind of ritual that takes place where they're carrying a, a very large swordfish over their shoulders and they walk upstairs and downstairs and they finally chop up this swordfish and a great deal of cookery takes place as in some of the size films and, you know, you're fascinated by the textures of the space and the dimensions of the space. And there, there are shots which capture the characters framed through windows in these very, very dark walls, which look like they've been sort of stained with ink. It is, of course, you know, a practically impossible film to watch online, especially with the very distracting red logo of a Berlinale bear in the corner. So I was I was yearning all the time to see this in a dark cinema with with other people who would be sitting there feeling as perplexed as me. I don't really know, you know, it's it's a sort of mystery object. I don't know what it's about. I don't know what it's for. And it's something I really want to see again. But it really came across like, you know, if you went to a kind of international avant-garde theatre festival, this would be the piece that made you sit up and think, you know, what have I just seen? I found it absolutely compelling and and sometimes funny and, and very beautiful. And, and of course, there's this uh, very um, lively pig running around, um, airing its uh, discontent very loudly in certain scenes. I guess in some ways it's a film that emerges from the new globalised experience. I think I'm just kind of glancing very quickly at the, at the press notes, which otherwise I haven't read. But I found it, uh, it's really something. And it's very, very, uh, you know, e even though it, it resembles the work of other filmmakers, 
it's as uh, Susan Sontag used to say about about the filmmakers she liked, it's a hard case. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the humor uh, in it as well because I think there's a version of that movie that could be kind of self serious and playing up its its project of what it is doing, but I think also sharing with with Sai. Uh, Ming Long is is there's always a bit of a deadpan sense of humor because also the surroundings can be pretty somber uh, looking yeah like the the building in Stray Dogs or something as far as to just say as far as the humor goes you will also learn if ever you've wanted to know how do you weigh a pig that doesn't want to be weighed this film shows you the easy way to do it <laughs> yes, and uh, I have to admit that I had an immediate moment of recognition because on the occasions when we find ourselves wanting to weigh one of our cats, that is also how we do it. Exactly. All right. Well, that brings us in our, to the end, I think, of our Berlin speed round. But uh, I'm really glad we got to talk about these these movies because each of these, also, if you just step back and think about just this, um, this span of imagination here. I mean, just, th this is kind of a microcosm of the heights that this year's edition got to, I think. Uh, Jonathan, thank you again for taking the time to talk, uh, debriefing. Thank you. I hope we are able to do it uh, again soon. Yeah, and I hope, you know, I hope next time, you know, maybe it will be in Cannes, in real life, in July. Who knows? You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at repold.substack.com. That's repold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.